I had a friend that knocked me off balance when he first asked me this question years ago, but that's why I ask it, because this friend likes to knock people off balance. But here's the question that he asked me. He said, Craig, is, is my sin as obvious to you as your sin is to me? <laughs> I'm like, whoa, wait a minute, you, you mean you can see my sin? I, I thought I had it covered up. You know, so it was quite a moment for me that somebody could see my sin. But it is true that we can easily see in others what we really can't see in ourselves. Because we're very slow to see ourselves for who we really are. And we're very slow to assess our truest and our greatest needs. You know, we are like the fabled emperor. Everybody else saw that the emperor had no clothes on. But we parade on oblivious to the fact, thinking that we are in fact splendidly dressed. But spiritually speaking, and the spiritual is more real than what we call reality. Spiritually speaking, we don't have any clothes but we are in desperate need of them. And until you and I rightly assess that as our need, and until we acknowledge that Jesus is the only one who can fulfill that greatest need, we will not be the thankful people that we are called to be. And I want to be more thankful in my life. Do do you? We'll never be the ministering people that God has called us to be. Not as long as we don't see our own true need, not as long as we continue to condescend to other people. The reality is that every one of us, every person who has ever lived, we all stand in equal need. The poor person, the sick person, the person with addictions, they we, we are not better than they are, and they are not less needy or more needy than we are. There's only one true condescension that has ever taken place, only one. And that's when Jesus, the Son of God, condescended. He left his home in heaven and he condescended to come down and to live among us. What you and I do is not condescension at all. Because the differences between us are negligible. Whether you are the homeless guy in Hardy's parking lot or whether you live here on the battery. We can't get high enough above another human being to be able to step down to them. So if the great apostle and missionary and teacher, Paul, says this, is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all, if the apostle Paul considers himself chief among sinners, what room does that leave you and me to be better than anyone else? Or to be anything but humble, thankful, ministering people? That's what we need to be. That's what we're called to be. That's what hope will be as we come to the word of the Lord this morning. So now I'm going to ask you to stand again. Acts chapter 17. And we're going to hear read together the word of the living God. Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 11. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a great distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. 
One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? you well. Let's pray together. Holy Father, once again, we pray that through the power of your Spirit, you would speak your truth into our lives this morning. Where hearts are hard, soften them up, Lord, by your Spirit. Where ears are deaf, open them up to hear your truth. Lord, where eyes are blind and failing or refusing to see, open our eyes to see who it is that you are and who it is you call us to be. Transform us through the power of your word and by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. You know, when we consider some of the elements of this story that we've just read, we would be hard-hearted people, indeed, if it doesn't change us into people who instinctually and effortlessly, first and foremost, offer praise to God for who he is and for what he has done for us. If we don't instinctually and effortlessly have this desire to minister to others. I hope that's what happens as we look at this passage. Look again with me, if you will, in verse 11. And we read there, Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. Now why is it that Luke includes this little uh, piece of GPS information for us about the route? That Jesus traveled. Well, it serves the purpose that Luke hopes to achieve with his gospel. You know, Matthew, when he wrote his gospel, he was writing to the Jews, and so he included uh, elements that would resonate with Jewish culture, elements that would resonate with Jewish religion, because Matthew hoped through his gospel to reach the Jews. Luke, on the other hand, he writes for Gentiles. He addresses this gospel to a Gentile, a ruler named Theophilus. Because Luke, through his gospel, hopes that he will reach the Gentiles. And so Luke always highlights the universality of the gospel. That the gospel is for all people, because all people, Jew and Gentile alike, stand in equal need of it. And so Jesus writes here, of G- uh, Luke writes here of Jesus being on the border. Which means... That Jesus didn't bury himself among his own people. Instead, he walks on the border. The land between the Jews and the Gentiles, the Samaritans, who were considered by the Jews to be Gentiles, outsiders and strangers. And so it's almost as if this border is a, a balance beam upon which Jesus walks without faltering. He doesn't fall to one side or the other. He doesn't choose one side against the other, because all people stand in equal need of him. He will make himself available to all those people, whether they are Jews or Gentiles. Neither can we dismiss the possibility that in his divinity, Jesus knew that these lepers were in this village, that he knew that they needed him, and so he went there to make himself available to them. It wasn't the typical route that you would take from Galilee to Jerusalem. It wasn't the shortest or the easiest route, but yet that is the route Jesus took, inconveniencing himself, lengthening his trip 
for the sake of these lepers because that's the kind of Savior that he is. That's the kind of Savior that you and I have. And I like to think about Jesus in these ways, doing these things. Because Jesus isn't just our Savior. He is that. But he is also our standard. And so what we see him doing, what we see him doing so effectively, how we see lives being transformed by him, those are the things that we are supposed to be doing because Jesus has entrusted to us the gospel. He's put it right here. And from here, it's to flow out of our lips. And so where is the balance in our lives? How much of our time do we spend buried among our own people? How much time do we spend on the border, available to other kinds of people? See, you and I, we have to stay up on that spiritual balance beam as well. We don't want to fall off on either side of it. We need each other desperately. We do. Scripture calls us to not give up, to not forsake the assembling of ourselves. We need to be together. We, we get strength, we get encouragement from one another. But we also are commanded in Scripture to get out into the world. And so we have to ask ourselves this morning how willing we are to go out of our way. How willing we are to inconvenience ourselves so that we can be available to others. See, we won't be willing to be inconvenienced. We won't be willing to go to the unsafe place. We won't be willing to go to the uncomfortable place until we acknowledge how great our own need is and how much Jesus did to meet that need. I guarantee you this, it wasn't convenient to hang on the cross. It wasn't. So to you and I do, until we do what the lepers did in this account, we won't be willing to do that for the sake of others. So let's keep moving. Jesus walks along the border and he comes to a village and he encounters ten men who had leprosy. And here's kind of a disconnect for us because... We really don't know anything about leprosy. It's so rare in the United States. Only about 3,000 cases that require medical management. So we're not familiar with this disease, but it's not that way around the world. In India, country of India, between 1991 and 2007, there were more than 12 million, 12 million people with leprosy. Actually, that number went up in 2012. There was an increase of it, and, and more than half of the cases are in the country of India. So you know what? Our church, Redeemer Presbyterian, we support four children, two sisters, Ritu and Mohini, and brothers, Rohan and Harry. These sisters and brothers live at the children's home, which is in Bhagpur, India, along with three other students. And here's the mission of that home. To see underprivileged children especially from leprosy-affected communities, cared for, educated, and nurtured to become well-adjusted in today's world as living witnesses of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know Karen, flute player Karen, right here? She grew up in India. Her parents worked, her father directed this home, and through the years she's told us the stories of these children whose parents are lepers. Stories of the one yearly visit that the children have with their parents. And at that once-a-year visit, not only are they usually not allowed to touch, not even embrace. Once a year, these children see their parents. So do this this week. I hope you'll do this. 
Thanksgiving Day. Maybe you can take a few minutes as you're giving thanks to your blessing and pray for these sisters and pray for these brothers and pray for their families. Leprosy is a, a bleak disease. It is now and it was in Jesus' day. They couldn't cure it. Physically, you know the manifestations of it. You've seen comedies about it, but it's true. You know, skin would fall off. Nerves would become dead and fingers, toes would fall off. The disease would destroy the mouth and the nose until the person with the leprosy would either starve to death or die of infection. On a social level, it was a mark of disgrace. If you were a leper and people saw you, they wondered what kind of awful, horrible, terrible sin that you had committed to be afflicted with this disease. But I guess the worst part of the disease is the isolation that it brings. You're cut off, literally, from the land of the living. Parents from children and children from parents. Verse 12 encapsulates the life of the leper. Look there. It says that the ten lepers stood at a distance. They stood afar off from Jesus, and that was their life. They were always at a distance, always out of reach. And that's according to Leviticus 13, 45, and 46. It says the person with such an infectious disease must wear torn clothes, let his hair be unkempt, cover the lower part of his face, and cry out, unclean, unclean. As long as he has the infection, he remains unclean. He must live alone. He must live outside the camp. So it's a disease of isolation from your family, from your friends, even from God, because you're not allowed in the temple to worship if you're a leper. So it's a hopeless life. And these men knew that there was no cure for leprosy. None is offered in Scripture. In fact, rabbis in the day believed it was as easy to raise somebody from the dead as it was to, to cure a leper. It could only be done by the miraculous intervention of God. Well, that's their condition. Bleak, miserable, painful, disfigured. That's the life of the leper. That's reality for these ten men until this day. The day they see Jesus passing by, something changes. And so they break the law imposed on the leper. When they see Jesus, they cannot remain silent. When they see Jesus, they call out to him, even though they know they're not allowed to call out to anyone or to greet them. And it's not a timid whisper that they call out, but in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. Why? Were these lepers so attracted to Jesus? Why were they bold enough to break the law? What did they see in the person of Jesus that caused them to call out to him for help? What had they heard about Jesus? That they knew that they could call him master. How would you answer those questions? They're good questions. What attracts you to Jesus? Really? Are you attracted to Jesus? What makes you want to call out to him in your life? Do you call out to him in your life? See, this is an I don't care Throw caution to the wind moment for these lepers. Because they see Jesus as their only hope. They're desperate. And so when I read this account, I know that I don't feel as desperate as these lepers. But I know I should. And I know that I'm missing out on the great blessing that comes 
from being this needy of Jesus and from calling out to him. Whenever there is a lack of desperation in any of our lives, if we're not desperate people, then there's a lack of understanding who we are and how great our need is. Not just for our salvation, but for every day of our lives. You know, we live like after Jesus saves us, and we're so thankful that he has saved us, but we take over from there. It's like, okay, when Jesus saves us, he puts us on the right track and he gives us a big shove. Now now go, you're off on your own. We're desperate for Jesus, not just for our salvation, but for every day of our lives. Paul wrote to the Galatians, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You can't do it on your own. You and I are in desperate need of Jesus. The Spirit of Jesus every day of our lives. Something about the person of Jesus said to the rejects of society, the notorious sinners, the poor, the sick, the diseased, the crippled, the ones who failed miserably time after time, that it was all right to cry out to Jesus, that it was all right to come near to him. But see, I don't put myself in any of those categories. And you probably don't either. I'm not a reject of society. I'm not a notorious sinner or poor or sick, or miserable. I clean up okay. And even though I'm from West Virginia, you know, i got a full set of teeth. (laughs) So my life isn't marked by the desperation of these lepers. Maybe yours isn't either. We don't call out to him as we should because we don't realize how desperate we are. But we're desperate. We are. James 1.14, each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Romans tells us the wages of sin is death. Ephesians tells us we were dead in our transgressions and our sins. Looming death, looming death is a most desperate situation. Don't you agree? And just as leprosy was a condition for which there was no help, apart from the divine intervention of God, so there is no help, there's no cure, there's no rescue from sin and death, except by the divine uh, divine intervention of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are desperate. J.C. Ryle writes in his commentary, If saints could only see their souls as the ten afflicted lepers saw their bodies, they would pray far better than they do. That's the truth, isn't it? Let's move on and see the Lord's response to the cries of these lepers. It's in verse 14. Jesus hears them call out and he responds to them in an unusual way. Now, normally when Jesus heals somebody in the Gospels, he touches them, he puts his hand on them, or he puts spit and mud on their eyes. You remember that story, or at least says, hey, your sins are forgiven. Take up your mat, get up and go, I've forgiven you. He doesn't do any of that for these men. He doesn't tell them they're, they're cured, he doesn't do any of that. He just says, go show yourself to the priests. Because the priests had to certify whether someone was leprous 
or not? Well, they must have had hope that Jesus was going to do something because they obey. And they set out on the path toward the priest. Now, imagine that walk. Woo, I love to think about it. Verse 14. We're told that as they went toward the village, they were cleansed. As they went. So they are walking along. Can you imagine? These ten leprous men. What's their conversation like? Every step of the way, they must have begun to feel and see physical changes in their physical bodies. You know, one leper might look to the other and say, Hey, your white spots, they're gone. Your skin is clear. Or maybe as they walked along, they said, I'm getting the feeling back in my fingers. I'm getting the feeling back in my toes. And step by step, they felt this healing that Jesus was bringing about in their bodies. They were cleansed. Their leprosy was gone. Can you imagine being one of those ten? The morning they had woke up helpless in pain and suffering and in isolation, but then Jesus passed by and he spoke these six words to them and now they have life and health and hope. What about us? What is Jesus' response to our desperate situation? Hebrews 9.14 How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Ephesians 5.26 We looked at it last week. Jesus loved the church, gave Himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her, cleansing her, cleansing us by the washing with water through the Word that He might present to Himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she, she, she should be holy and blameless. Titus 2.14 says that Jesus gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify or cleanse for Himself His own special people. Zealous for good works. That's Jesus' response to the desperate need that all of us have. He has rescued us from death. He has cleansed us. He has washed us. He has made us clean. He has given us the promise of a bright and beautiful future. And He has given purpose to our lives so that we don't have to look around aimlessly for for, for meaning. No, He's given us important work to do. Work that has eternal significance. And so it is an incredibly satisfying work. So that our lives aren't empty and meaningless. What is your response? To what the Lord has done for you. What should your response be? To what the Lord has done for you. Let's continue looking at the story. How does Jesus respond? How do these lepers respond to Jesus? Let's compare the ten up to this point. All ten of them were afflicted with this terrible disease. All of them hoped that Jesus might do something for them. All of them called Jesus master. All of them obeyed Jesus' command. And all of them are healed. Now that's where the comparison stops, or at least the similarities. Of the ten that were healed, only one came back. Just one. Only one praises God. Only one throws himself at the feet of Jesus and says, thank you, thank you. Which evokes what I consider this very sad question from Jesus. Were not all ten healed? Of course they were. Well, 
where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And notice that Jesus refers to this leper not as you. Are you the only one found? No, he says, was no one found except this foreigner? Because Jesus isn't talking to the healed leper at this point. I think Jesus is talking to those who are gathered around, the disciples and the Jews. And I think he's using the opportunity to highlight how thankless, how thankless the human heart tends to be. How slow we are to give praise to God for who he is and for what he has done for us. We grab the blessing and then we run off asking for another. But to highlight this is a great mercy from Jesus. Because you know what? A thankless heart is not a happy heart. It isn't. A thankless heart is not a happy heart. And a heart that does not praise is not a happy heart. And Jesus wants so much more for us and for our lives than that. And so he uses this as a teaching moment, as an opportunity to reorient the thankless hearts that are around him. And he does it with this question. Where are the nine others? Now, what are you going to say if you have to answer that question? Where are the nine others? What's the reason they didn't return to the Lord? What could have prevented them from coming? Was it because Jesus' importance paled in comparison to the other relationships in their lives, like the reunion with their husband or with their wives or their children or their family? We could ask ourselves, how often does our relationship with the Lord take a backseat to the other relationships in our life that we put first and foremost? Why were these men not intrigued by the man that not only had the power, but the compassion to heal them? Why did he do it? Why do they not want to know more about him? Maybe the reason was that what occupied their minds was not, what's my relationship with the Lord? But, what's my relationship to myself? What's my relationship to my life, my trials, my troubles, my sickness? You, you might say that the lepers only saw their need as literally skin deep. See, if they did not see their real need, it was for a relationship with Jesus, but rather saw their need only as healing from a physical sickness, then that problem was taken care of. Why go back? It's a done deal. If our main interest is not our relationship with God through Christ, but rather our relationship with our own lives and our own troubles, then the end result will be that we see no significance in our relationship with the Lord once the crisis has been averted. That's the end of it. We want God to take care of our immediate needs more than we want to pursue a relationship with Him. So when a crisis in which we need God passes, we don't know how to continue on in a relationship with the Lord. We quickly forget what God has done for us. Look in verse 19. Jesus makes a very interesting statement there. He says to the Samaritan that returned, Your faith has made you well. And they go, wait a minute, weren't all ten of them made well? Well, what does it really mean to be made well? Well, it doesn't mean this. Being made well is not the person who has had their trials and their heavy burdens removed through a miraculous working 
of God. That may not be a truly well person. It's not the person who asks for God's mercy in crisis and gets it and then goes thankfully on their way. That's not a person who's truly made well. It is the person who recognizes that their real need is to be in an intimate, ongoing relationship with God through Christ. It is the person who responds to the call of God and obeys His command to believe Him. That's the person who's really made well. Are you well? See, when you come to the place that you know that nothing you do makes you deserve the love of God and the grace of God, then you're on your way to being a well person. And when you receive the grace of God, only through faith in Jesus Christ, only through faith in Jesus Christ, then you are truly made well. And when you go to the Word of God every day to see the face of Jesus and to hear the words of Jesus, when you pray, when you have that growing and ongoing relationship of intimacy with Him, you are truly a healed person. And you'll be the one leper who comes back and gives praise to Jesus and to worship Him. You'll be filled with joy and thanksgiving because you know that you too, you get to go home someday. Get to go home someday to be with the Lord forever. Jesus has met our deepest needs. He's given us the clothes that we need. In fact, He's put a robe on us. It's the robe of His perfect righteousness, which covers up from the eyes of God all our sin, all our disfigurement. No, because we are robed in the righteousness of Christ. What possible reason can we offer for being among the nine, for not returning? Every day. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. For what you have given to me. Not just for eternity, but now. The abundant life that you offer. We have a wonderful, merciful Savior. He's the one we must praise. And how can we not be out there, on the borders, telling others about Him? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I confess if it's only for myself and no one else here in this room that I am not nearly thankful enough. Lord, it's so easy to look at our lives and see what we don't have or what we feel we need instead of looking intently and lingering on all your goodness to us all that you have done for us. It's easier to get up this morning, Lord, and complain about the cold and the rain than it is to give thanks to you for the life that you've given us and the rain that's going to water us, water our, water the, the earth and give us something to drink when we're thirsty. Lord, the inclination of our hearts is to be thankless people. It seems like we are blind to see all your goodness, but our eyes are wide open to see our need. And Lord, I pray that this just a great reversal would take place this morning through the power of your Spirit. You would transform us. Make us thankful people. Make the words that come out of our uh, mouths, Lord, words of praise, one words of, uh, of thanksgiving. 
Though it's good, it's well of us to, to come to you with our needs. You tell us to do that. Lord, we don't need any encouragement to do that. It comes so naturally to, to our hearts. Lord, we pray now that praising you and thanking you and looking at our lives for reasons to praise would become the natural inclination of our hearts because you are a wonderful, merciful Savior. We love you and we praise you now in Jesus' name. Amen.